All right, we'll get started. So, Annie tells me you guys have solved the divorce and remarriage issue for the church for all time, so we're good. We don't have to talk about that. Glad we missed that, yes. I know who to call now. And now, actually, as we start in chapter 10, uh, we'll try to do 10 and a little bit of 11 because we're obviously a little bit behind. Uh, Thanks to Sandy for taking up. All right. The key on Mark 10 is Mark 10, it's actually not about divorce. He teaches about divorce, but it's like in marriage counseling. When the, when the issue is not the issue, that's what the. So the whole Mark 10 is about power and pride versus humility. Remember, this is Peter setting up, telling these stories to John Mark. And so. We just had the transfiguration. Jesus has told them, you know, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And Peter says, no, you're not. Uh, and so they're now moving fast. So once you get to chapter 10 to the end of the book, the rest of the book is only 10 days long. Maybe. It actually may only be seven days or six days or eight days. Uh, the first, so the first part of Mark is his entire three and a half years of ministry. Chapter 10 to the end is about... 10 days max. So he goes from a super compressed story to a really elongated story. Uh, and so part of that is getting back to what Peter and Mark were attempting to do with the book, which is to say this is what a Christian looks like. This is what Jesus as the Messiah, this is what a disciple looks like. So Mark 10 is about power and pride versus humility. Because they put these stories in here which don't really seem to go together, uh, but they do. Uh, so you have the divorce, about the children, about money, about death, about power and, and blindness. And all of them are contrasting the way we look at issues in life versus the way Jesus is teaching them. And so all these, that's what these stories did. So divorce is the first one. Let's talk a little bit about what is actually occurring here. Remember, Jesus started up here uh, in Herod Philip's area, had the transfiguration, and then he said, it's time to go to Jerusalem. And the disciples think he's about to establish his kingdom, which we're going to get into the story of who's number, you know, who's number we know who number one is, that's Jesus. Who's going to be number two? Who's going to be number three? Uh, so they're basically coming down Capernaum, wrapped around, uh, and they crossed into this area called Perea, right across from Jericho. So they're across the river here. The important thing to know about that is, if you look, it's green. That's, that's territory that belongs to Herod Antipas. Who killed John the Baptist? Herod Antipas. Why did he kill John the Baptist? Because he was getting on to him about Herodias, his, his wife, who used to be Philip's wife, until she divorced him and then married Herod. So the issue, the question that's the question for the first part of this is the morning. Uh, 
They're setting up a trap for Jesus. This is a flat-out trap. If you think back in Mark 3, the Pharisees and the Herodians got together and said, how are we going to get rid of Jesus? And the entire time he's up, the first three years teaching, he doesn't, you know, he, he tells people, you know, don't tell them I'm the Messiah. He really is not laying out. Now at the last part of this book, he is going to act like the Messiah. He's going to Jerusalem. We're going to do the triumphant entry in chapter 11. He is going to be the Messiah. And so the, where they're at is now Herod Antipas territory. And so what you have are the Pharisees uh, come by testing him. Uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And in parentheses is what they're really asking. Can we get you to say something that allows Herod to kill you? That's really, really, really what they want him to do. Because John got thrown into prison and beheaded for answering the same question. Because you're in Herod's area. And we know from chapter 3 that they're, they're talking to each other, uh, trying to get him thrown in jail. And then he, the way he answers it is he answers it by not answering the question. Uh, he's got a two-part answer. He's got a public answer. What did Moses command you? And then they answer that the correct. They, the best part is they answer this correctly, which is that Moses really didn't allow us to do that. He just said we have to get a certificate. And then Jesus comes back and goes all the way back to Genesis and says, here's the real basis of marriage. Genesis. Uh, and then this little part here in chat, when they're in the house again, so now he's in Capernaum, or he's in not Capernaum, he's in a house that he's staying at somewhere there. The disciples, meaning the 12 and some of the, now this is not the hundreds following, and this, this is the close group. He actually answers the question that the Pharisees ask him. So they didn't have the guts to say Herod. They didn't have the guts oh, no, no. to they, say... Well, they, they were, they're, they're the smartest... The Pharisees are the smartest guys on earth, right? You know. That To be a Pharisee, you had to be the smartest of the Jews. And so they're, they're tricking him. And they're going to come back here in about three days and try it again. They don't, they don't learn they on this one. They want to get Jesus to do what John did and actually speak his name and say, you know, Herod's... Herod should not be married to this woman. You know. right. I, 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 let me give you a little of the political background. Herod wants to be seen as the Messiah. He is asking Rome at this point in time in history to make him king of the Jews, which in his mind makes him the Messiah. So you have the real Messiah now saying about Herod Antipas he is not the Messiah and here's why because the Messiah has to be beyond reproach and so when he gets back with the disciples he says anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery and this is the why we know he's talking directly about Herodias and if she divorces her husband and marries another man she commits adultery 
in that period of time, in the Jewish culture, women could not divorce. Men could divorce. Women couldn't, they couldn't divorce. They were, they were powerless. So in Greek and Roman culture, women had a little more rights of divorce, but the men still had the majority of it. But the fact that he's basically saying, so when he says she, I think he's saying Herodias. He's basically saying, Herod, yes, Herodias committed adultery. She left her husband and married another guy. So that's his actual answer to the question up at the top. Now, I, I will throw another thing that you may think about. Who is likely or possibly could be in this group of Pharisees? Saul. Remember, Saul is, at this point, one of the chief disciples of Gamaliel, who the two main schools of thought among the Pharisees are Shammai and Hillel. Gamaliel married Hillel's daughter. Gamaliel taught Saul. So Saul is one of the leading Pharisees. So he is very likely, when you see, when you get close to Jerusalem, the Pharisees show up. Think in your mind, Saul is probably in that group. Because that's who Gamaliel, who was the head of the school of Hillel, would have sent. You're going to sense your top people. Because we know, if you go to the book of Acts, when they decide that they're going to send people out to arrest the Christians, who volunteers? Saul. When they decide to stone Stephen, who volunteers? Saul. So think about that when you read when you read all the books that Paul writes, that it's very likely that he was here, one of those Pharisees questioning, trying to trick Jesus into being arrested and killed. We don't know for sure, but there's a, there's a pretty good probability. There's not that many Pharisees, and there's definitely not that many that are the number one disciple of Gamaliel, who is the head of the school of Hillel. All right, second story. People bring little children to Jesus to place his hands on them, and they rebuked them. Remember what we talk about. In this culture, our, you know, we're totally reversed in this culture. We, our children are treasures. First century culture, children are children. They're, they're, more, they're more field hands that you're going to need in the future. You're, it's primarily agricultural. So it's not that they don't... They love their children, but the hierarchy is definitely parent to child. It doesn't go the other way around. So the disciples are saying, hey, no, don't bring your kids in because the adults are the important things. And so Jesus takes this and flips this and says, no, you have to become like children, which is you know, talking about the trust and uh, the straight, simple faith. You know, it's just remember, what, who did he just talk to? The Pharisees, the smartest of the smart, who are trying to kill him. And then the next story that they bring in is this about children. Like we said, it's all about contrasting power and pride versus humility in this chapter. And so he tells this story. And again, when the disciples heard this real time, they would not have understood this. Remember, we're talking, this book's written 20 years later. And we know they didn't understand it because of the next story. 
right, this is the story that dry, that the apostles are like, what? Remember we talked about prosperity theology, right? Uh, is the most, that is the dominant theology of the time. If you're rich, you're observant. If you're poor, you're sinful. Everyone wanted to be rich because that meant God loves you. If you're poor, it means you're sinning against God, and that's a problem. So we have this, uh, so Jesus is across the river. He's getting ready to cross, going to Jericho. Uh, good teacher, what must I do to inherit life? Eternal life. Uh, which tells you that you know this is not a Sadducee. The Sadducees will tell you that there is no, there is no life after death. So this guy's not this guy's not a priest. Uh, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, "No one is good except God alone." Basically, this guy's called good teacher. He doesn't really mean that. He's just being polite, trying to you know trying to get an answer. Uh, you know the commandments, and then he gives the commandments. Teacher, all these I've kept since I was a boy. So this guy's answer is, I have never sinned. He, he asks him, how do, I get your, how do I get to heaven? And the rich guy says, I have never sinned. I have kept all these since I was a boy. That means I've never done those. Remember what we're talking about. Chapter 10 is about pride versus humility. That's literally what this guy is saying. And it's similar to Paul's statement in Philippians to the law. Blameless. Right. I'm blameless, yes. And remember, to the disciples, the disciples are all watching this. Rich is observant. It is blessed. This guy's rich. They know he's rich. And so in their mind, they're going, yep, you're right. He is, he is blameless because he's rich. God has made him rich. So therefore, he's blameless. And so uh, Jesus then takes this pride and flips it. Everything in this, in this chapter is, here's where we are, and Jesus goes, oh, let me tell you the truth. And he flips it 180. Uh, One thing you lack, something you have given to the poor, you have treasured him, then come and follow me. And the man's face because he had great wealth. And so this really, really, really bothers the disciples. Jesus looked around, how hard is it for rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his word. Why? Because if you're rich, you're observant. If you're poor, you're sinful. Jesus just told this guy to give away everything and follow him. Make yourself poor. And so they are totally perplexed by what Jesus is saying. And he comes and says again, children, how hard is this for those who trust in riches? That's a marked editorial comment. Uh, to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who's rich to enter the kingdom. We'll talk about that in two seconds. And then they are even more amazed. And it said, then who can be saved? Because if your entire life you've been taught rich is blessed, 
rich is godly. Jesus just flipped that 180. He just said, no, no, it's not. This guy who you think is godly is not because he's all about pride. He's all about greed. What is with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible. And then Peter spoke up. Once again, it's always Peter, right? Peter, let's see, his personality type, he's, uh, he, he has no filter. Whatever comes in his mind comes out of his mouth. Uh, we have left everything to follow you. So what is Peter saying? We're on our way to Jerusalem. We're, that's where the kingdom is. What is, a, what is about to occur in Peter's mind? Elevated to the, the bosses. We're about to be the boss. We're about to be the richest guys in the kingdom. Remember, you go into the temple. The temple at this point is the inside of the temple is gold clad. Uh, there are stories in AD 70 when they burned the temple down that gold ran off the temple mount and that Roman soldiers would put their helmets out and fill it with gold. So much gold was in the temple when it burnt. Uh, that's where they're headed. That's where the apostles think they're about to become the boss of. And he sits him down. I'm going to steal your thunder. He sits him down in front of the temple and watches a widow. Right. And so, like I said, this whole next chapter says the guy's going, Jesus, here's what we're going to do. And he goes, wait a minute, let's do this. Yeah. Next story, Jesus, this is what we're going to do. Uh, wait a minute, let's do this. And that's why I said they don't get this until after the crucifixion and resurrection. And then all of a sudden, all this shows back up in their mind and go, oh, that's what he meant. You remember, because you know, this book, we're talking 20 years later, Peter really has a good idea now. You know, like, think of our lives. Think of things you, where you see God working in your life 20 years ago. And you go, oh, that's why that happened. I didn't like it when it happened at the time, but I can see where God was working. That's the same thing that Peter's doing when he's telling these stories to Mark. And truly I say, no one who's left home and brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields or the, for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come. Those who are first will be last and the last will be first. So he's flipping everything that people are expecting, especially the apostles on its end. And we're, we're about to know that, again, the apostles do not hear this because we're about to have another conversation. Let's, do, let's talk about Eye of the Needle for a second. We've all heard over the years, uh, you know, how the camel through the Eye of the Needle. Uh, let me give you a couple things that... It may be that that's a hyperbole. Uh, interesting enough, uh, the word for rope and word for camel are the same in Hebrew. Remember, there, there are no vowels in Hebrew. It's only uh, consonants. So GML is camel. GML is also rope. Uh, and in the, in the first century, a lot of the ropes were made out of camel hair, which is why they're the same word. Uh, and then in Greek, the, the word for camel is camelos. The word for rope has an extra I in it. Uh, so it's very possible what he said was it's hard for a cable to go through. Uh, and then 
one of the reasons I like this, this is a Jewish proverb uh, that was told by the rabbis in the first century. How does a rope thread a needle? By losing enough threads until it is enough, meaning it's small enough to go through. Which goes with this Jewish proverb of the same era, which I really like this concept. Uh, each of us is a rope made up of cords. The gifts of God are the cords which build us into a rope capable of the tasks that God has sent before each of us. The extra cords that God has given us more than we need for our task are the gifts of God that has given us to build up the others for their task. This is a first century rabbinic saying that Jesus would have known because it's out it's written at that time. That goes very well with the concept that he talks about the how you get a how do you get a cable through a needle? You have to pare it down to its essence. So, <laughs> yeah. So the story we've heard about the eye of the needle was a little pain in the wall. I mean the Jerusalem. I actually, I actually looked, I actually looked that up. That gate in Jerusalem was not built until the 1600s. Yeah, so that was the, that, that that story is probably not true. Okay. Uh, it, it, now there is a Jewish hyperbole of the same period that says, "How hard is it to get an elephant to go through a needle?" <laughs> Which is also it's it's uh, written. It's a rabbinic saying at the same time. So yeah, it's entirely possible he he was doing hyperbole that you know you can't get a, a a camel through a needle, but it's also possible he was saying you can't get a cable through a needle, you know because the cable's a big rope. And then, but that goes along with this Jewish proverb and this thought of the time, which is that uh, you are a rope, and then what God gives you extra things, and then but you're, it's not your job to be a thick rope. Your job is to be the size rope God needs you to be, and then your extra you give to people to build them up to be their job. And so I, I really like this proverb because it really it really talks about where the gifts of God come from and what what you do with them. So if I had not noticed before on the questions that Jesus puts in the list of commands that he follows, that he follows giving the man the opportunity to say that all of them. That last one, defraud. Did you catch that one? That, one's, that one was like, this would be really specific to him, potentially Zacchaeus, but here's the idea um, that really it's not, when you're listing the ten, you don't you don't say, thou shalt not defraud. Right. You know, I don't think, do you? It's just, well, it's just, it's, just, it's just a way of saying it. I mean, uh, you know, because it's like it's easy. I, I'm not killing me. You know, these I'm not killing anybody. I'm good on that. You know, one out of ten. Yeah. But he, uh, he kind of that, that could yeah. be a unique one for. And, well, I mean, and yet, even then, the guy still says no. No, no. He says no. I'm sinless. I mean, his answer is actually I am sinless. Which is, you know, that that's a pretty that's a pretty bold answer right there. Yes, Sandy. The question we asked in the first place is a little bit odd because. You don't have to do anything to inherit what your parents own. 
your kids don't have to follow certain rules to inherit. They will inherit. You drop dead, they're inheriting. Right. And the point is, you can't do anything. Uh, God grants it. Gives, gives it to you, yes. And the gift. And so he's saying a little bit later, it's impossible with them, but with God, God all things All things come. Yeah, and so it's that it's that thing, and it's the same thing we we get into. Like we said, prosperity theology is a very widespread American theology. Puritan work ethic. Puritan work ethic. Work your way to heaven. Correct. And that if God loves you, He rewards you. Uh, and then, but I, that's what I like this proverb uh, about the gifts of God because it is. Yes, there are, a lot of us are gifted. God does not gift us all the same. He gives more to some than others. But the reason he does is this, is that he gives it to you so that you can give it to other people. Now, it's not always is God given directly to other people. Sometimes he gives it through intermediaries. And, so, and, you know, and that's whole, especially this time of year, since uh, Giving Tuesday is uh, what, a week from, tomorrow, week from Tuesday, that you're going to get 7,000 emails and mailers. If, if you've been to your mailbox, you know what I mean. Everyone's sending you stuff. Uh, you know, we are the richest people on our, in the history of the earth. Uh, our, our uh, oh man, I should have brought, there's actually a, uh, there's a website uh, that you can enter either your annual income or your net worth. Uh, it's called the Rich List. Rich, just Google search of richlist.com. And it will tell you where you stand of all people on earth on what percentile you are. There, by the way, there's nobody in America that's lower than the 98th percentile. Global rich list. Global rich list, yes. It, it's, uh, so if you think you're poor, put, your, put what you have in there and you realize like, oh, uh, maybe I'm a little better off than I thought it was. Yes? Josh said something about this once in one of the sermons about Williamson County is the seventh which is kind of... Yep. I mean, you, you look at our net worth in this county. Uh, I'm laughing. Our net worth in this county uh, is probably more than the entire country of Malawi, where Jay and I run a hospital. Our county is probably wealthier than that entire country. Our county has... Williamson County has more... Has, almost 10 times as many physicians as that entire country does, just our county. I'm always struck with the life that Jesus chose because he had riches at his disposal. Yes, I mean, everything. When you look at a couple of times, you know, in Scripture, but the thing that stands out to me is when he had the Lord's Supper during Passover, and suddenly he's got an upper room. He's got all the furniture. He's got a donkey to take and follow this donkey. I mean, it's like, I have the world's riches, the best place at my fingertips. And he never used it until he wanted to initiate the Lord's Supper and he's crawling around the ground washing feet. Right. That's how he used this. That's how he used his riches. He took his clothes off and well, washed the disciples' feet. The last six, cha six chapters of this book are all about power versus humility. It's Jesus now saying, all right, guys, I've taught you for three and a half years. Now let me show you what that means. 
you know, in, in this last 10 days of his life, uh, which are this next six chapters, that's what Jesus shows you. That's what Or, and now, how, how we know that the apostles were not hearing anything Jesus was saying right here. You got the big three, right? Peter's already stuck his foot in his mouth like two seconds ago. What? We've given everything up. How are we going to survive? Now the other two show up. James and John. Uh, James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want to do for us whatever we ask. Now, all of you have been parents. When your children come up and ask you that, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not going to tell you what I want, but you, you got to do what I want, right? Yeah, no. This is, this is literally two-year-olds coming up to Jesus and about to ask him something that they know that he doesn't want to give them, but they're going to ask him. Uh, and then he asks, well, what do you want me to do for you? And remember, James and John, if you look in Matthew for the same story, the section on James and John asking them, it's, it's, it's their mom. Uh, and then we, we, we talked a little bit about James and John may actually be Jesus' cousins of some sort uh, because their mother ends up with Mary at the cross and is said to be her sister, which, again, sister does not always mean sister. It, may, it means female relative. Uh, so these guys are related somehow to Jesus. Uh, and we also know that they're related because when, if you go into Matthew, when uh, James and John's mother comes up, that would never occur culturally unless she's related to him. A strange woman would never approach a rabbi and talk to him. He might, the rabbi could invite her, but there's no way that she would walk up. Because in Matthew, it's their mom saying this. Jesus, can you set my boys to right and left? In other words, it was like, she wanted them to care of Yeah, she is saying, and what they're saying is, remember, in their mind, where they got, they're on their way to Jerusalem. They're across the river from Jericho right here. So they're only about 12 miles from Jerusalem. Passover's coming up. They're going, we're about to be crowned king. So, you know, it's a, bad, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to be number one and number two to Jesus, right? You know, it, it, someone's got to sit on his right and his left. We're volunteering. Uh, let us have your right and your left. Uh, in your glory. So they're basically saying, yeah, you're about to be made king of the world. We're not asking for a lot, just right and left hand. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink to be baptized with the baptism about to be baptized? Because remember, he's been telling them all along, I'm going down to die. And Paul, Peter goes, no, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. Uh, and they go, we can. I mean, exactly like a two-year-old, right? They have no idea what's coming. And he says, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to set the right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those to whom they've been prepared. And so basically says, wait, you're, you're right. You are my disciples. I know where you're going, and you will drink the same drink, and you will be baptized the same way. And it's very interesting. 
to think. Remember, who's the first who's the first apostle to die? James. Who's the last apostle to die? John. Uh, so I mean, think of John, who lives. We know he lives into the, in the 90 AD range. So he's probably 90, thinking back on the on this conversation. You know, of well, yeah, Jesus was right. I have baptized the way I have drank. What he drank. But he, you know, in fairness to the disciples, because I would be same situation probably. I mean, they listened to this guy and were fascinated by Jesus, and then all of a sudden he says, "You're my disciples," and he they're traipsing around the countryside and watching this stuff happen. And they're like, what, what did we leave our jobs for? Now remind us, you know, what, what did we leave our life for? You what, know, where are we with this thing at I, this point? I, I mean, a lot of them, they're thinking, they are, at this point, they're going, ching, 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 you know. They're going like, we thousands of people are, are following Jesus. And they're going like, wow. The, you know, this guy's healing, he's raising the dead. He's healing people. He gave us the power to heal people. We can cast demons out. Wow. We are going to be rich. Because, no because we're godly. We're going to be rich. Because godly and rich equal. And, that, and he's trying to teach them. And they, they will, like I said, they will learn these lessons as soon as they get on the other side of the crucifixion. They'll go, once again, and say, oh, that's what he meant. You know, how often in life have we had that lesson of Someone teaches us something, we ignore it, and then later on we turn around and go, oh, I guess he was he was right about that. It makes sense, too, because these are some young guys. Oh, these guys are all, yes, they're in their they're 20s. Really they're in their 20s. So they're, they're full of physical benefit. Oh, yes. <laughs> yep. And I wonder what they thought, because they're thinking of a traditional king. Yeah. Like, they have absolutely. absolutely. But it's not like there's a army behind them. That's, that's the only way you really got Well, at, at this point, they they are they know that he's the Messiah that he comes from God. They're not wondering because well, they're they're real they're looking at all these miracles, and going like, uh, he he made a storm go away on the Sea of Galilee. Right. Right. They walk in and go, all right. We're, you know because they know all the stories of the people of Israel. They know how God has done stuff. And they're going like. Yeah, you, you remember back when you know we were ta- conquering people and like they came out and everyone was dead? Yeah, that can happen. And so that's what they're thinking. We, we put it in perspective when being as young as they were. And then you think about what you said, it's 20 to 30 years later when they found a way to down. I just think back at how I acted when I was in my 20s versus how I am now in my 40s. It's a totally different person. It's a different era, a different age. When I was in my 20s, I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof. You know, right. I was going to conquer everything. Now in my 40s, I'm just trying to make it to the bathroom all the time. Well, and, and I was reading this morning about Moses. 40, he didn't get to lead for 40 years. Yeah. 40 years is how long before he was the commander in chief. 40 years. This is only three. Yeah. But, and, then these, and these guys are all, they're all, they're all pumped for this because you know, you know, because remember Passover, you have the, the Songs of Ascension where you march from Jericho up to see Jerusalem's three thousand feet higher. They're going to sing the Songs of Ascension, do the Psalms as they march up, 
and in their mind, they're marching up to conquer the city. Because that's what the Messiah in their mind is going to do. So they are totally pumped. And so when the other ten heard this, they were indignant. Uh, I, don't know why, I don't know why Peter's indignant. I mean, he's already been in trouble twice, three times in the last several chapters. Yeah. It should be the other nine plus Peter. Peter should have said, wait a minute. But you know, Peter, his mouth's going to run. Uh, and then Jesus called him and goes, you know, wait a minute, you're not like the Gentiles. You must be the servant. You must be the slave. Again, they don't understand this. He's been saying this over and over and over again. They don't get this until after the crucifixion. And then they go, oh, that's what he means. You know, we have to just use a little bit of caution, I think, to project on the 12 entirely what we would suspect to be their hope for. Because we have no specific right to say, man, we were really into looking for the money in any of the writings of Peter or, or, or you know, even even in some of the Gospels where they were saying that the Passover thing, hey, hey, we're going to be rich tomorrow, you know, there's not any of that kind. I know we can look at it and say, boy, their understanding of the science is wrong. Right. To say that from day one they, they were in it for the money. Oh no, they, they were no. they were not in it for the money. I mean, they're true disciples. It's just that think about okay, well, it. I was oh, sorry, 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 no. They, the twelve of them were called, and so you know they start out as the twelve, and Jesus is teaching them, and then you know before long you've got a hundred people listening to Jesus, then you got a thousand people listening to Jesus, and then you know the last story before the transfiguration. He wanders three days into the desert, and there are 5,000 people that follow him. I mean, that's a, in those days, that's a huge crowd. That's more than any, most of the cities have. I mean, people are so enamored of Jesus that they're just they're flocking to him. And, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, it's like if you're the Rodan and Fields, you know, the first person that started selling Rodan and Fields, right? You know, you were good, and now all of a sudden there's a million people following you. Yes, I'm doing good. So I think the apostles... They did not get in it for the money, but at this point in time, they're clearly still thinking they're about to be the rulers of the kingdom. I think the human side would almost oh, have yeah. to have a little bit of caught into the power. Oh, yeah, because ev everywhere Jesus goes, and then... Oh, yeah, right. I mean, even at the beginning of Acts 1, after the resurrection, are you going to do it now? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Now, now, now we're good. Now we're into That's right. Also, think about rabbis at that time, like Hillel, Shemaiah, I mean, they would only take a certain amount of disciples to teach. So those people would feel privileged to be under this man, seeing all that he has done. Right. And in time past, those people who became teachers after these other people could be sitting there and seeing, like, what's his name? Gamaliel, a yeah. teacher, who was what? A great, it was a descendant of. He, he's, married to, he's married to the da Hillel's daughter. He's, so he's Hillel's son in law. He has this status of being a great teacher. So these guys may be seeing what they've seen in these other rabbis about the things going on Facebook. Maybe this will be us. Right. We're learning from this guy, and this guy's doing greater things than those guys ever did. You know, right. we've seen them do these things. They want to be the influencers. Right. Yeah. They're the social influencers of the day. That's right. If they had Instagram, they would have like five million followers. Uh, and, and all right, so now the last story in chapter 10. Jesus flips it again. Uh, we, we're, we're about to meet a blind man that can see. All the apostles who have been with him for three and a half years are blind. 
Now we're about to see a blind man who can see. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, so they come to Jericho, they cross the river, they're on their way to Jerusalem. Uh, together with a large crowd, they're leaving to see the blind man, Bart Bartimaeus, which means obviously son of, again, this is a, uh, this is Mark for the non-Jewish writings translating his name. Uh, so it's interesting that they put his name in there. So therefore, most people assume that he has some people in the church would know him. Uh, because they actually give his name. All the other people, they're like, yeah, it's, the, it's the, the two blind guys, the ten blind beggars, you know. Bartimaeus gets a name. Uh, he heard it as Jesus of Nazareth. He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That is a messianic title. For a Jew to yell that out, is that's messianic. He recognizes the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. All his disciples have been going along they want the Messiah, but they're putting him in a box that they want. Bartimaeus says, uh, many rebuked him. He said, shout all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Because think about in the Old Testament, what does the Messiah do? When, when John sends his disciples to him, said, are you the Messiah? Jesus looks at him and says, here's the stuff I'm doing. Well, one thing that he does is the Messiah makes the blind see. That's one of the things the Messiah does. And he's already heard, because he knows Jesus of Nazareth, about these stories, of these healings. And Jesus stops his calling. Cheer up. Get on your feet. He's calling you. You know, this is, you know, the, the big rabbi is calling you up. And what do you want for me to do? Rabbi, I want to see. Go, your faith has healed you. Immediately receive the scythe and follow Jesus along the road. Which is, Remember, contrast this to the rich young ruler. What did Jesus tell the rich young ruler to do? Sell your stuff and follow me. And he goes away because it's sorrowful. What's Bartimaeus do? He immediately becomes a disciple of Jesus. So this is the story contrast in the first century. The guys that you would think are gifted by God, the rich man, versus those you think punished by God because, remember, we, all these other healings, who sinned? that this guy is blind. Trust me, the disciples were saying that because that is the teaching of the day is that things like uh, illness and blindness all came because of sin. He even threw his cloak aside. He didn't even take his cloak, which I've seen with, I've seen bankers. I mean, usually, I mean, I would think he's sitting there with his cloak. Look, 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 coins, there are coins in there, yeah. He even threw away the one thing that he had that was his means right. of life. Right. Because he's heard the stories. He, I mean, th th this is this is a story of faith. I mean, he just goes, all right, what do you, Jesus goes, what do you want? He goes, I want to see you. Straightforward. Which, I mean, think about it. He's When he says, I want to see, he's also throwing away his livelihood. Yeah. Because that yeah. Is a, he's a beggar, and that's his job. That's his, made his life, he's living his entire life. I want to see. I said, okay, you're healed. Boom. I mean, no, think back to you know the last blind story where Jesus had to touch the eyes and make the mud and all that. He doesn't. He just looks at Barnabas. All right, you're good. Get in line. And Barnabas goes, okay, and becomes a disciple. I contrast that with the rich. So this, so that's the whole, in this chapter, all these contrasts are occurring. Jesus 
people trying to put Jesus in a box, Jesus saying, no, that's not the box I'm in. Here's, here's the truth. Let's put Jesus in a box. No, he's not. So basically, pride versus... A reminder to, you need to read the stories at least a chapter or two at a time. Right, because remember, none of these had chapters were added fourteen hundred years after this. This is a story that Mark, Peter is telling to Mark, who's writing down to send to the church. And they're putting these stories in an order for a reason. And the reason is you're, you're contrasting pride versus humility, power versus humility. And now. Uh, Mark 11, uh, I guess we'll get to Mark next week. Jesus is the king, triumphal entry. So we're now in the last seven days of Jesus until the crucifixion, the last seven days of the book of Mark. Uh, So Mark 11, triumphal entry, cleansing of the temple, uh, and then the teaching. And the most important part, read about it, is the fig tree. I'll give you a hint for next week. The fig tree is the most important part of this story to, to the Jews of the first century and probably to us if we understand how the fig tree actually, what it means. All right. See you next week.